No section of the Bible teaches us the language of the heart better than the Psalms. The Psalms really chronicle every human emotion that every human being can be in, um, every emotion that may you know, pass through our minds, and they tell us how to process those emotions before God. You know, the Psalms have been called the prayer book of the Bible, and it's noteworthy that they're not 150 songs of joy. <laughs> the, the majority of the Psalms are Psalms of complaint and doubt, of disorientation. Uh, what an expression, Psalms of disorientation. And they, those significantly outnumber the happy Psalms, which is, uh, uh, of course, indicating to us that we're going to oftentimes feel that way. And we feel it right now in, in particular. And I, the Psalm we're going to look at is Psalm 11. It teaches us how to experience God during times of distress and difficulty. And there are a couple of lines in the psalm that I think you'll notice are especially applicable right now. It's a psalm of David, the subtitle for the director of music of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. And on the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And upright men will see his face. We don't exactly know what's going on in this psalm. There's the very vivid image in verse 2 of uh, someone taking a bow and arrow and shooting out of the shadows. Um, he bends the arrow to shoot at the shadow, out of the shadows at the upright in heart. And a number of commentators suggest that, um, you know, since it is a psalm of David, that what he may be, uh, he may be referring to here is you know, a political assassination. Right? It, this might have taken place in the latter part of David's kingship when Absalom or some other usurper was fomenting a coup d'etat. And so David's royal advisors come to him and they say, Oh, oh no, we can't trust the judges because you know, they may be in on the plot. And we can't trust the army because who knows what side they're on. We can't trust anybody. What are we going to do? And the only answer is to flee, fly, escape. You escape like a bird to the mountain. Maybe you saw the headline in the LA Times this week, which read, Hoping to escape coronavirus, city dwellers are fleeing to California's deserts and mountains. You know, it's, it's like straight out of the psalm. Um, the desire to run away and hide is, is, is so strong in, in us when the foundations of civil society begin to crumble. What's interesting here is if David had left, you know, David is the king. If he had abdicated and tucked tail and, and ran for the hills, it would have actually made things worse. I mean, if the king, if the righteous disappear when the foundations are crumbling, then, you know, the social order is just going to collapse even further. By resisting that impulse, David is actually doing what, what most honors God and what also is most loving for his neighbor, and I want us to consider that. Um, 
know, yeah, deep inside of us, there's this impulse. I just want to you know, hide myself away. But is that really the answer? Now, I hope and pray it doesn't come to this. But what if, just what if in spite of all of our efforts, the pandemic actually gets worse? And we're, you know, we're a few months into it. We're in October. Businesses are still closed. Many are still out of work. And everyone has several loved ones who are sick, dying, or even dead. And the despair of verse 3, if you look there with me, the despair of verse 3 is palpable. You know, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? That rhetorical question, what can the righteous do if, if things get really, really bad? The answer is to go on to verse 4. Because <laughs> the difference between verse 3 and verse 4, I mean, 1, 2, and 3 are panicky. They're, they're desperate. And verse 4 is this, it's like an entirely different atmosphere. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. Yahweh is on his heavenly throne. You know, the first step, as I see it in Psalm 11, of experiencing God in times of distress and difficulty is to know that God is on his throne, to see him on his throne, while at the same time recognizing that you, you may not have you know, all of the answers to your questions. A prominent seminary professor at a reform seminary that you probably have heard of um, before, I won't give the name, but he wrote a, a, an article this past week about the coronavirus, and he, and he basically said that, yes, God is on his throne, and this virus is God's holy judgment upon mankind. He goes on that the Lord is long-suffering and slow to anger, but throughout history, God, he does work through temporal judgments. Such a worldwide judgment hasn't been seen since World War II. But he goes on to say, God is judging the nations for their idolatry and corruption. And God is judging the United States for her approximately 140,000 abortions that have been performed in this calendar year alone. And then he goes on to catalog you know, other national sins. Can we say for certain that that is God's reason for sending this virus? I mean, King David would not... He would not disagree with the fact that God does send temporal judgments upon mankind. Um, And he says that in very descriptive language in verses 5 and 6, how he, how he, um, he, he rains um, fiery coals and burning sulfur and a scorching wind upon the wicked. Yeah, that, you know, just metaphorical language um, is, can happen in this life and, and it will happen in the final judgment. Can we say with certainty this is happening now? What I'd like you to remember, a few weeks ago we were in the book of Ecclesiastes and I tried to make the case that this life, there's just such a fog that accompanies this life, that it obscures our vantage point. A very fascinating thing I came across on fog this week. Did you know that a fog that is 100 feet deep and covers seven square city blocks is comprised of less than one glass of water? It, like, there's virtually nothing there. Um, it, is, it, it is less than one glass of water divided into 60,000 million drops. And yet something that small, kind of like a virus, it just cripples a city. 
And what Solomon would say today is that there is a fog between us and the throne room of heaven. Like we can know that God is on his throne and we take great comfort from that fact. But it's not like we're up there hearing him give his orders to the angels or his orders to, I mean, it's not like we're there. We cannot see. Um, Whatever is going on, it is obscured to us and from from our vantage point down here. We don't get to hear those words. The words we can hear, though, are these. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, or what you will wear. Because is not your life more than food and your body more than clothes? Oh, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you, by worrying... At a single hour to your life. Why do you worry about your clothes? Look at the flowers of the field and how they grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, uh, uh, ye of little faith? We hear those words, and those are the words of the man who is presently occupying the throne. We hear those words about his father, about how his father, who is our father by adoption, is truly in control. He's in control. We hear, uh, I love Heidelberg Catechism question 27. What do we understand by the word providence? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by the hand of our Heavenly Father. Heidelberg 27. Uh, and, and that's what we must see when we see the throne. Um, we may look back uh, on this situation a year from now and say that this shutdown was an overreaction. And, and maybe we'll say the damage it did to our economy was, it was worse than what the virus uh, was itself. But by the same token, we could look back a year from now and say that we didn't do enough and we didn't, uh, it turned out to be far worse because we didn't respond rapidly enough or decisively enough. The fact of the matter is, I don't know, and you don't know, and your Facebook friends, <laughs> they don't know. Um, none of us know because, because this life is a fog, and we can't see up there. All we know is that none of it is by chance. Everything has come to us by our Father's loving and wise hand. And no matter how much worse this whole thing gets, that's what we must see. Secondly, I really want to encourage you to pray your emotions to God. If emotions are the cry of the soul, then the Psalms give those cries a voice. The Psalms teach the language our hearts can speak to God The reason this is so important is many of us, I mean, frankly, we either ignore or we deny. We ignore or deny how we really feel. 
particularly the darker emotions, the, the emotions of anger, of sadness, of fear, and shame. I mean, I noticed this about myself, that, that I, I can be utterly and completely oblivious to, to what I'm actually feeling at any given moment. Um, and many of us are that way. We either ignore it or we deny it. But somebody profoundly said that the Psalms can't help you heal your pain if, if you're not even in touch with your pain to begin with. If you're not even aware of your pain, you don't even know that you even need to pray the particular psalm. Um, we, there was a, a moving article in the New York Times magazine this week entitled, What I Learned When My Husband Got Sick with Coronavirus. It was written by a woman who's not a Christian, and her husband, I don't think he's a Christian either, but her, her uh, 56-year-old husband got sick, and she just kind of cat- cat- uh, uh, catalogs what it was like to go through it, um, nights where he's you know, in bed, shivering and hallucinating, and, one, and she's wondering, do I take him into the hospital? What do I do? And, and just the whole disorientation, disillusionment of getting on Facebook, and here's what she said, you know, here it is, my husband is dying, and at the same time, my friends are unconsciously going about their ordinary lives, experiencing the more urgent advisories and directives as a vast communal experience of sharing posts and memes about cabin fever, about homeschooling, about social distancing, about how, how hard all of it is. While we are living in a makeshift sick ward, living what will soon be the present for more and more of them, wondering, like, just holding on by, uh, by, uh, uh, by a thread. And it's so disorienting because we're here and everybody else is there. What I want you to know is that if, if that becomes us, if that becomes you, then your father wants you to talk to him about that. He wants to hear you. He wants to hear your anger. He wants to hear your fear. He wants, you know, many of us would say we're not afraid to die because we are Christians. You know, I'm not afraid to die. But we, we are afraid of dying. We are afraid of, of uh the pain of dying, aren't we? We fear the scarcity of the last days. We fear isolation. We are afraid of missing out on certain parts of life. Like if you're older, you're afraid of missing out watching the kids grow up. I'm afraid of not getting to walk my four daughters down the aisle. (laughs) Um, If you're young, you're afraid of not getting to experience like all of life and, and play all the music that you hope to do and, and get married. And we're, we're afraid of missing out on being part of our grandchildren's life. We're, we're, we fear how our loved ones will make it when we are gone. Particularly if your family is very dependent on you for things materially or emotionally. We, we're afraid, how are they going to make it, Lord? And then maybe, maybe we fear that either God will be disappointed in us We'll be the one people who make it into heaven and, and he's like, oh, <laughs> you're here. Uh, or that there won't be any rewards for us or maybe we won't get to heaven at all. But what was helpful in me, um, for me thinking about it this week is God wants to hear those things. He wants, he wants us to pray those things and those situations Situations that many of us deny, even when we are in the middle of it. He wants to hear those concerns come out of our lips. 
And it's in the process of praying our emotions to him. I think then we get to number three, which is we really experience God as our refuge, which is verse one. Like, in the Lord I take refuge. It's like, you think about what a refuge is. It's a structure that protects you from enemies, a structure that protects you from a storm, a structure that protects you from evil, it's uh, a place of safety, a place of shelter and rest when circumstances are swirling wildly, wildly around outside. A castle is a, is a refuge, a fortress carved into a solid rock with high walls and a deep moat. That, that is a refuge. Um, a home is a refuge. A home is a place of safety where you can just let your guard down and be completely loved and ex- accepted. And, and, and David so often gets this in his psalms. He's like, Lord, when I have your love in my life, like when I have your love, nothing is better to me than your love. Your love is what gives me all the strength that I need, um, all the honor that I want, all the joy that I want. When I have your love, when I experience your presence, I have refuge. Like I really have refuge in those moments. You know, sometimes you're reading a passage of scripture and the passage just blazes off of the page at you and it fills your soul. And sometimes it becomes so real, you know, the assurance that uh, from Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you, you read that and it completely fills up that hunger for safety inside of you. And even though your circumstances haven't changed a bit, you, 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 it's like you say, I have nothing to be afraid of right now. Like I feel that. I have nothing to be afraid of. That is what David is talking about right here. There's an old preacher illustration that I've used before that I like. It's the lumberjack story. So two lumberjacks come into a particular part of the forest. And they know that over the next two weeks, they've got to take down every uh, tree in this part of the forest. And so one lumberjack looks up and he sees a bird trying to make a nest in a tree. So in his mercy, he takes the outside of his axe and he just, you know, clobbers the tree as as though it was um, a baseball bat and and a ball. And the little bird up there, after it kind of has a cerebral hemorrhage, (laughs) figures out, I can't live here. I can't do it. And so he moves on to the next tree and he starts to build his um, nest in the next tree to which the next lumberjack goes and he starts to sock that tree, relentlessly dogging and harassing this bird until finally the bird flies off and he makes his nest in a rock of refuge where he's truly safe. And if you say to me, you know, Brad, can you explain that a little more? The answer is no. I can't can't explain it anymore to you. Um, It's something... It's very hard to define if you've never experienced before, but I, I truly believe God wants you to experience it, uh, to experience what David knew, that, that God is a refuge, that God will always come through for him, that God will always be his strength when the foundations of civil society are crumbling. You know, earlier I mentioned fog. Uh, I do have a fog story too. One of the greatest hymns that, were ever writ- that was ever written, and we're going to sing it here in just a moment, is William Cowper's um, 1774, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. 
incredible hymn story behind it. Cowper, Cowper uh, who's a, a close friend of John Newton, uh, lived in London, was a man prone to deep melancholy and, and depression. Well, one day Cowper calls for a coach to come and pick him up, a, a horse-drawn carriage, and asks him to take him to the London Bridge. Because Cowper, he doesn't tell the driver this, Cowper intends to jump off the London Bridge and commit suicide in the Thames River. Well, it was a very foggy evening. So foggy that they drove around London for two hours, after which the, um, horse, uh, the carriage driver said, I, don't, I have no idea where we're at. We're completely lost. And Cowper, I mean, he wants to go commit suicide, and he's frustrated. He says, you'll just let me out right here. And he walks about 100 feet from the carriage, and you know where he ends up? In front of his house. <laughs> in front of his home. In front of this surprising refuge. And so he walks inside of his house and he begins to pen the words to this famous hymn. How God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And then my favorite one. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. The greatest example of this in all the world is is the cross. It's the cross of Christ. Um, Like Shelton said, the man who knew the love of God more than anyone else in this world uh, experienced experienced that on the cross where God took the most horrible thing that that could possibly happen and used it for such overwhelming good. Uh, The author of Hebrews says about Jesus that though he was without sin, quote, he learned obedience through what he suffered and was made perfect through his suffering, Hebrews 2.10. And then what's wonderful is he goes on and you get to Hebrews chapter 12 and it says, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable. Let us worship God with reverence and awe. Friends, if God can use Jesus' sufferings for such good, surely he can use these for ours. Uh, I'll conclude with this. Maybe the refuge you want to meditate on is simply Heidelberg Catechism question one. Like, what is my only comfort in life and death? In life and death, my only comfort is that I I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Friends, that, that is a sure foundation. That is our strong refuge. It's in our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.